0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. We simply must choose to lead. And today, this
1: federal government is.
2: This proposed cap also undermines the unity of our country. And Albertans will not tolerate it. A cap-and-trade system for cutting oil and
0: gas emissions. The federal plan is out. We'll get reaction from the Pembina Institute and from the energy sector.
1: It was a farce and a joke.
0: Marathon voting, tension at committee, and a probe of the House Speaker. Our political observers weigh in on a heated week in Parliament. And... The pressure continues for a promised bill to fight online hate. What will be in that legislation and why the wait? Two questions I'll ask the Justice Minister, Arif Virani. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson in for Michael Serapio tonight. The federal government wants a cap-and-trade system for cutting emissions in the oil and gas sector. The goal, a 35 to 38% reduction from 2019 levels by the year 2030. Today's framework would also let companies buy carbon offset credits or pay into a decarbonization fund. The draft regulations are expected by springtime, with final regulations in place by 2025. The federal energy minister is calling it a cap on pollution and not a cap on production. Over time, we do expect global demand for oil and gas to peak and go down. The International Energy Agency said that that will happen by the end of this decade. At the end of the day, if we're converting transportation to electric or hydrogen, and we're uh, converting buildings to use uh, heat pumps and electric heat, eventually you're going to see a decline in global production. And the best way for Alberta and other producing provinces in this country to maintain competitiveness in that market is to have the lowest carbon intensity barrels of oil and the lowest carbon intensity gas. And so that's the point around competitiveness is this is in the long term interest of the
3: industry. And I think if you talk to many in industry, they will tell you exactly that.
0: Alberta's premier is calling the emissions cap an intentional attack on her province on the heels of this week's federal announcement on methane.
2: There's no question that if they continue on this path, it will end up with court. And I think in court, and I think we will win. We have now seen the federal government lose two cases at the federal court level because they continue to use their jurisdiction as a pretext to invade ours. This is not cooperative federalism. I would ask them to read the court decisions again. You do not come to an international conference and then drop two unilateral policies in our jurisdiction out of the blue, without getting our agreement. That is what they essentially did this past week. It's unacceptable and it's unprofessional.
0: Let's go to Calgary now. Janetta McKenzie is acting director of the Pembina Institute's oil and gas program. Thanks for being here. Your institute is calling this a good news day for Canada. Why is that?
1: Yeah, so this is a great step from the federal government to put out some real numbers for a policy that aims to see real reductions uh, in emissions from the oil and gas sector in the short term. And this is good news. Oil and gas is Canada's highest emitting sector, uh, and but we've yet to really meaningfully bend the curve on emissions uh, from oil and gas. So this is a, a great announcement today.
0: Now, the government has put this cap in the 35 to 38 percent range using the year 2019. As a baseline, we've previously seen um, a higher number floated, around 42% as the possible target for emissions. Is that difference a concern for you?
1: Yeah, so this is lower than, uh, than that forecasted reduction in the 2030 emissions reduction plan, but it does represent some real meaningful reductions from the sector uh, going to 2030, and also provides some flexibility for the sector to get there.
0: Okay, now um, you're in Alberta, the Premier, Daniel Smith, is saying that this amounts to a production cap. She's saying it uh, will undercut investment in green technology. What do you make of those arguments?
1: Yeah, this is, you know, this is not a production cap. This is an emissions cap, which is within the remit of the federal government. And where it's set, as it's proposed, it will prompt investment in decarbonization while providing that flexibility uh, for the sector going to going to 2030. And this is, you know, this is filling a bit of a gap in terms of addressing oil and gas emissions in Canada and in Alberta. This is, you know, the Alberta uh, government hasn't made a ton of progress on their emissions reduction plan for oil and gas. It was announced earlier this year, and their plan even mentions targets that are reasonably aligned uh, with the federal uh, plan. But the difference is today and this week, the federal government has made really meaningful steps forward, whereas we haven't seen that progress on the provincial side.
0: Right. We know we have seen um, some discord uh, between the Alberta government and the federal uh, government when it comes to climate policy. We're hearing a bit of that today. So if this does turn into another constitutional tussle between Alberta and the federal government, uh, do you think that's going to be holding up climate action over the next few years?
1: Yeah and the timeline here is pretty critical you know obviously we're on a timeline not just for 2050 net zero targets but also for 2030 so it's it's important that we get uh, policies like this emissions cap, implemented as soon as we can. Obviously, this is a regulatory framework. There's still a lot of policy development to go. But what this cap does, as it's proposed, is it's set at a level that again prompts that decarbonization, but doesn't but doesn't have a huge impact on production. So it's it's well within the gov- the federal government's uh, jurisdiction under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act.
0: All right, Jeanette McKenzie of the Pembina Institute. Thanks so much for this tonight.
1: Thanks for
0: having me. Well, let's get more reaction to the federal plan for emissions. Tristan Goodman is president and CEO of the Explorers and Producers Association of Canada. Mr. Goodman, welcome.
3: Thanks very much. Really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Now, your association represents over 100 energy producers, and you put out a statement earlier today you're calling uh, an emissions
3: cap unnecessary and unacceptable. Why is that? Yeah, we do believe it is. It's very disappointing that the federal government has gone down this path. Um, The industry actually, according to federal government-owned data, is moving in the right direction and reducing emissions. And to single out the industry with a cap, I mean, there's not a cap going on to aviation or manufacturing or other aspects. It seems to just be targeting one industry that actually is making headway. It also doesn't recognize the existing policies that the federal government has put in place, most of which actually aren't yet implemented. And because of some of those policies, they are, along with the help of the industry, moving in the right direction on GHG reductions. This will be unhelpful.
0: The federal government is including carbon offsets. They're including a decarbonization fund to try and get to that 35 to 38% target. So uh, when you say it's, it's an unacceptable and unnecessary plan, uh,
3: do you take issues specifically with those measures? It, you know, it's actually not the actual specifics. It's the concept of an emissions cap. Um, that is the main focus that we have concerns with. It's just not needed. And it, it further adds sort of to uncertainty and the problems that investors will see broadly across uh, investing in Canada that's the main problem that we have and it's it just doesn't recognize the effort that's been put in also related to the specific detail that they are trying to get to um, the percentages you referenced the existing requirements actually uh, will get us there and there's been a number of independent sources saying that including actually if you look at the IMF they have, work out that indicates that uh, Canada has an ability actually to meet its Paris commitments if these things are implemented. Creating exemptions of course here and there on carbon price is not actually going to help that situation for the federal government.
0: And we do have the Alberta government today calling this uh, a de facto production cap. Do you agree with the province and with
3: Premier Daniel Smith on that point? I actually do. I think the reality is that any, any sort of emissions cap will move at some point, potentially, to a production cap. We don't know exactly when that will occur. There is various analysis, all, as you can imagine, among very good economists debating that point. But the practical reality is that there are constitutional problems with this. It's, It's better to use other methods that the federal government has already pursued. And on top of that, they, they seem to have done reasonable consultation with Indigenous communities on some of those other pieces, but this one is certainly getting a pretty negative reaction from a large number of Indigenous communities for the lack of consultation from this by this government.
0: Okay, and very, very quickly, uh, last question to you. Uh, the government has put out a timeline for this, putting out draft regulations uh, by the spring with final regulations uh, to come in 2025. So uh, what are you going to be watching for now uh, in the next few months, especially during this consultation period before those draft regulations come out?
3: So despite the negative implications here around business affordability and generally uh, across Canada, um, we are going to continue to work constructively with the federal government and we'll be evaluating those specifics as it goes. So there are various things that have to be worked out in there despite disagreement and we'll watch also what other governments do uh, in the coming few months. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Tristan
0: Goodman, thanks for your time on this tonight. Thanks very much. All the best. Conservatives plan to force more than 100 House votes through the night and into Friday, saying the government needs to offer more exemptions on carbon pricing. Now, this follows a long, tense meeting at the Natural Resources Committee last night, with Conservatives bringing forward thousands of amendments to the Sustainable Jobs Bill. And I often hear conservatives get quite righteous around tables like Can these. Speak, about I speak, Chair? I have the floor. So for me to make my first comment of the evening and be told by Mr. Brock, get I should shut list. up because he doesn't want to hear any more from me.
4: Paraphrasing, hey. paraphrasing.
0: And I'm constantly getting interrupted by new Democrats. Who are uh, committed to preventing me from speaking, Mr. Janice. because they don't want my consent? I'm going to ask order. you to pause, and we have a this point is, this of order. This is disgusting, by Mr. Chair. Bring these members Blakey. to order, and let me speak because I have the... F- Mr. Blakey on the point of order. Thank you very much. All right. Well, let's talk about that and more. We've got our weekly panel of political observers in studio. Susan Smith, is principal with the Blue Sky Strategy Group. Jordan Paquette is a senior consultant with the Blue Sky Strategy Group and Anne McGrath is the NDP's National Director. Uh, Jordan, let me start with you. We're seeing these conservative delay tactics on government spending and on uh, that Bill C-50 at the Natural Resources Committee. Uh, What is the political calculation that Mr. Poiliev and his advisors are making here?
4: Sure. I mean, look, I think it's, it's definitely to keep the pressure on, keep the House in longer so they can continue to talk about uh, issues like the carbon tax and, and issues that matter to them. I think, you know, the filibuster goes back a long time in parliamentary history. I mean, we saw the NDP use it as well back in 2011 for, for bills they didn't like with Harper. So it's, uh, it's just one of those things. They can't keep them in the House forever, but uh, it's certainly something they'll use to drag it out a little longer. Yeah. And Susan, As
0: Jordan mentioned, it's not the first time we're seeing an opposition party use a filibuster, use delay tactics on something they're opposed to. We've heard the Prime Minister calling it a stunt, calling it a, a fundraising ploy. But do the headlines on all this about carbon pricing, about the cost of living, does that just add to the pressure? that the Prime Minister and his government is facing right now?
2: I think, I think the stunt is, it's a political stunt, it's a political tactic. Most parties have used it at some stage or another. I think at this stage of the game, as you're moving into the holidays, Canadians are tuning out on shenanigans on Parliament Hill. If they even bother to pay attention to the fact that they're moving 120 amendments or 20,000 amendments to something they're going to think their politicians aren't doing the job that they're supposed to be doing, which is trying to get things along and make the the country get ahead. So I think at this time of year, it's December, how many days till Christmas? Everybody check your advent calendar. People are tuning out.
0: Yeah. And what do you think? Where do you think this leaves Parliament right now as we near the end of 2023? As you know, we just saw in that committee, we're seeing it in the House today. Uh, yeah. There's some tension here.
5: No, there's definitely tension here. Uh, I think one of the problems with the Conservative tactic, because it's, it's a tactic, and it's true, all parties use different tactics to, uh, like the, the one that people keep referring to in 2011 was when the uh, NDP did a filibuster to try and stop um, uh, a, a labour bill that was going to legislate postal workers back to work. And we have a very strong Principle against uh, uh, forcing people back to work, against back to work legislation. So we did a filibuster, and I think it was effective because it was a kind of a clear. It was clear why we were doing it and what we were doing it for. I think the problem with this right now is that it, is that it's a bit scattershot. shot. It's a little all over the place. It's like you know, uh, you know, doing what we just saw in the Natural Resources Committee. Uh, then there's the Ways and Means motions. There's there's uh, supply. There's supply issues. It's just like it's like throwing everything at the wall. So it's very hard to get the message out about what it's about and, and what you're doing to stop the thing that you think is important.
4: Okay, Jordan, what do you think? Is, is there a, a coherent message to all this?
5: Yeah, I think so. Look, I mean,
4: it's just getting to a point in this parliament where, where people are becoming frustrated. I mean, committee progress is slowing down. There's certain pieces of legislation that are attempted that are to be rammed through. So, um, look, the Conservatives are going to, every chance they get, they're continuously on this affordability message. The more days they have to continue to paint that, uh, that's what they're going to continue to uh, to do here.
0: Okay, Susan, I want to turn to the House Speaker, Greg Fergus. Another hot topic in the House this week. The House Procedure Committee has taken over this matter of his speech that he delivered to the Ontario Liberal uh, Leadership Convention last week, and they've got one week to report back with a, a quote appropriate remedy. That's okay, what's, so what's in the motion. Okay, so he didn't deliver a speech. Well, it was to a, the it, it was a video it message. It was a video, a video, a video that message. Got, yeah. uh, true, a video message. But we do have the Conservatives and the Bloc. Saying they want him to step down. So, how do you see? Do you see a path forward for Mr. Fergus here?
2: I do. Again, I think this is part of silly season. This is part of the tension that's that's going on in the House of Commons. Um, I don't think Mr. Fergus should have delivered that video, but I don't. Which was. Initially pitched to him and done as something that we showed in a private gathering to someone who had been a friend and acquaintance for more than thirty years. It got played at the convention. He did not know that, and then that's why we have this this discussion around this. He's recused himself from the discussions. The speaker's removed himself from that, so Parliament can talk about it without him. They're going to go to committee and talk about it. I think that's a good thing to do, and maybe there'll be some new rules that come out that when you're the speaker, you can't do any of this kind. You can't do any. Uh, personal videos for anybody and anything in the speaker's robes. Maybe they'll put some more strict uh, things around it. But th- Greg Fergus has come in. He's been in the job for 64 days, I think. He's tried to bring back some decorum to the House of Commons. I think the man needs to be allowed to do his job. I do not think this is a fatal mistake. I think this was, this was a, a, very human, uh, a very human gesture that got misused and misplayed and has been um, expropriated, I would say, by the opposition.
0: Okay, Jordan, let me come to you then, because the sure. Conservatives have already been pretty clear on this. They want Mr. Fergus to step down even before the committee uh, starts its study. So if all the committee comes back with next week or is, is some of the measures that Susan's talking about here, uh, and it stops short of actually saying Mr. Fergus needs to step down, uh, what are Conservatives going to say at that point?
5: Look,
4: I, I don't think there needs to be necessarily new rules. The rules are already in place. You cannot be in a partisan environment when you're speaker. He went to, or he didn't go to the convention. Susan's right. But you know, to send the message uh, and you know talk about getting a Liberal Premier Dalton McGuinty elected, you know, doing all those things in his speaker's robes in the speaker's gallery, uh, given the heightened scrutiny that would have been on the Speaker's office already. I think he should have known better at that point. Somebody should have advised him. He should have had the judgment. That's what the Speaker's are supposed to do. So uh, it's, it's problematic. It's problematic for him. Two of the biggest parties in the House of Commons no longer have confidence in him. And uh, you know we'll see what the committee decides, but it's, uh, it's, it's not a great situation for him. And Anne, we've, we've seen the NDP
0: say, we want to wait and, and see what happens at this committee. We want to hear some more uh, information. Um, what are you looking for? What. Are what are new Democrats looking to hear from in this study that 's going to make them come down one way or another here?
5: Well I mean I think we need to know first of all like w- what 's going on in that office like how, how did that happen? Um, this is not a like this is not a rookie politician you know Greg Fergus has been around in politics both as an elected and and, and, sta- and in a kind of a leadership uh, staff role um, and uh, I feel like it 's surprising to me that that this, that a mistake of this level would be, would be made uh, in that office. Um, you know, like in, in a lot of places, well, almost everywhere, the speaker doesn't even sit in a caucus, right? So the caucus meetings happen every week. The speaker doesn't sit in the caucus. Right, in the, in the UK, well, the, speaker, the speaker no, leads exactly, the party. Exactly, but but knowing that, why would you, I? I just find it astonishing that this could have happened. I also find it astonishing that you could do a video when you don't know exactly what's going to be done with it. I think that that's very surprising as well. So I think what we're going to be looking for is like what happened, why did it happen, um, uh, what other things are going on, is there anything else? I mean, the trip to Washington uh, and and his comments with Speaker Pelosi, former Speaker Pelosi in in Washington, all of those kinds of things, and what, what has to happen to make sure that nothing like that happens again.
0: All right, Susan, I'll let you quickly uh, respond in here because I know you wanted to, to no, get in. The
2: speaker. The Speaker in the House of Commons occupies occupies a very important role, and they also have a role outside the country. So they they visit, they do meet with speakers from around the world, and it would be perfectly normal for the the Speaker of the House of Commons to go to Washington and, and meet with present speakers or former speakers. So I don't think that's an important thing to tag Nancy Pelosi versus Paul Ryan or anything like that. He's doing his job in that. I think the committee will do its job. I think I look forward to the response of the committee. I think Mr. Fergus is an honorable man. He's, he's a trailblazer in his role as the speaker, and I think he should continue. Um, Bringing the decorum that he needs to to the House of Commons it's it's a gong show in there. it's kindergarten on the best day. it's gotten worse and I think his I like his deafness with shutting off the mics till everybody settles down a little bit so we can actually hear the questions and the answers of what's taking place.
0: Okay, we have a minute left. I want to very quickly get all three of you to weigh in on on the federal plan for an emissions cap on oil and gas, including carbon offsets for industry, Alberta and Saskatchewan. uh, Not happy, as we expected. Uh, We don't have a lot of time, but Jordan, we've seen signals that this cap is lower than what was expected in order to uh, perhaps head off
4: any more court challenges over jurisdiction what do you think sure and just full disclosure i do some work with the pathways alliance would be you know affected by this as well but listen it, the irony shouldn't be lost that the minister made this announcement in dubai and these are the countries that are going to benefit by production and emissions caps in uh, in canada so it's, uh, it, it will drive jobs overseas. Uh, Alberta's right to be frustrated about it. And I imagine this will be a long, drawn-out process in court. And, Susan, how do you think the government
0: is, is going to navigate this? Because they're getting criticized on both sides, from okay, industry well, and from environmental Sure, groups.
2: And, and no surprise there. And I used to work for a, a cabinet minister who used to say when they're yelling at you from both sides, you've actually found the middle path on things. This was a campaign commitment from the liberals. Uh, to look at oil and gas emissions caps. This is an emission cap. It is not a production cap. Alberta is not under Premier Smith and under Premier Moe in Saskatchewan. There is not a single thing that the prime minister and Canada, government of Canada could do that could make that province agree. I think at this point, if the government of Canada said Christmas Day is on, is on December 25th, they'd find a way to disagree with it. So what's this this is a framework that's been announced. There will be opportunity for industry, provinces, stakeholders to continue to feed in. And the regulations will come in about six months from now. So I think they're, they're taking the best way forward, given the Supreme Court rulings. And it's focused on emissions caps, knocking down our GHG emissions.
0: All right. And I'll give the last word to you. Are we headed towards another head-to-head uh, clash, had, had had clash. clash between this. Alberta
5: and Ottawa? Absolutely. Uh, it'll it'll, it'll add, to, add to the list. I do think, though, that like, they, they, they did make a commitment and they have not fulfilled the commitment. So they have backed off on what they said that they were going to do. And while the oil and gas companies and, and the Alberta government may be kind of kicking up a fuss about this, I think they're pretty happy about it because they backed off in, in a pretty substantial way. And they also, uh, they also pushed their deadlines past uh, the point that they, that they need to be. All right. Andrew, well,
2: I need to disclose that my company does work with the oil and gas sector, and I do too. I forgot to say it at the beginning, but I, there was a neutral observation that I made there. <laughs>
0: no problem. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you to all three of you tonight for your thoughts.
4: Thanks. Thanks,
0: Andrew. Advocates for an online hate bill are still waiting for the government to bring forward its new plan on digital safety. Those calls are coming at a time of rising anti-Semitic and Islamophobic attacks and with the recent death of a 12-year-old BC boy linked to online sexual extortion. For more, let's go to Parliament Hill and welcome the Federal Justice Minister, Arif Virani. Minister, good to see you again. Thank you. Now, you've said an online hate bill is an absolute priority for your government. This was first promised in the 2019 Liberal platform, as well in 2021, promising a bill... Within 100 days of that election, so why are we here in December 2023 still waiting for that legislation?
6: Uh, This legislation is a fundamental priority for me and for the Prime Minister. It's really, really important to address the multiple facets that people are facing when we're talking about online security and to ensure we get the bill right. We've been doing extensive consultations on the bill, but it is really critical to ensure that Protections that exist for people in the physical world are replicated for the online world because we know that is where more and more of Canadians are existing in terms of that internet space, that cyberspace. So it's really critical that we get it right and we're putting in the work to make sure that we do get it right. Protecting Canadians who are victims of any criminality is fundamentally my job. I was pleased to be able to do that with the passage of Bill C-48 on bail reform. This is complementary to that work, ensuring that physical protections are replicated in the online space. So in terms of what's actually going to be
0: in this bill when it does uh, come to Parliament, there is uh, an open letter from experts and advocates uh, last week saying Canadian children are at greater risk uh, from reckless social media platforms. They want those web giants held responsible for their advertising, for their design, for their content, moderation. Are these specific
6: elements that you're going to be looking at for this bill? There's obviously a component here when we're talking about online giants and online uh, companies and and their engagement. We've been engaging with them extensively thus far, but there's also a critical component about children's safety, and in fact, the safety of various vulnerable sectors. I was quite affected by what happened about two weeks ago with that child in BC, the little boy, the age of 12, who decided to take his own life after being intimidated and sextorted online. I have my own two boys at home, one of whom is 12 years old. It prompted a lot of difficult discussions Within my own household, I'm sure those discussions were replicated around the country. We are all concerned about the safety of kids, the safety of anyone who's vulnerable, because so much of their lives are being lived online. And that is what is motivating us to both pass this bill but also get it right before we table it. I think it's really critical also that Canadians understand we're already looking at things like sex torsion. When we made changes to the sex offender registry in Bill S12, which is already passed in Parliament, we included sex torsion as a crime for which one would be need to be registered under the sex offender registry, recognizing the gravity and the significance of the situation and how predators are preying on our young people. Now, there's been a lot of talk about how measures are going to be enforced.
0: Will you need a new regulator for compelling online companies to take action?
6: So I think uh, what Canadians should understand is that we're guided by a number of different facets. We're guided by things that relate to the criminal code, things mm-hmm. that relate to the Canadian Human Rights Act, things that relate to sort of what we've also seen in other jurisdictions. Part of the consultations that were done by uh, the Minister of Heritage previously and currently by uh, Minister saint donge is that they were looking at examples of what's been working and not working in international jurisdictions. So we've been looking at Australia, we've been looking at Germany, France, uh, the EU, to try to understand what works best and what hasn't worked so that we can perfect that and find that correct balance here in canada that's going to work for and produce the results that canadian want to see but i think ultimately it's just about that basic position that we've already got protections for people in the physical world we're trying to ensure that we replicate those protections for the online or digital world now there's also
0: as you know a lot of talk about how this, how all this relates to freedom of expression in this country and uh, criticism that measures could uh, lead us down a slippery road towards more censorship. So as you're going through this process uh, of working towards this bill, how are you going to to make that balance between public safety and between uh, people's rights to expression?
6: Well, I think the most important thing for Canadians to understand is that freedom of expression is protected in Section 2B of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That is something that I'm sworn and duty-bound and oath-bound to uphold as the Minister of Justice. That is always my fundamental priority. It's a hallmark of our democracy. It's what makes us what we are. That being said, Canadians should also understand that we have certain uh, limits on freedom of expression in this country already. We can talk about facile areas such as copyright or patent law, but we can also talk about the protections that protect against hate speech that exist as of right now in our criminal code that have been upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada. So when we talk about Are there justifiable limits on freedom of expression? There are in Canada. Those have been upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada. That's important. And we're taking our guidance from the Supreme Court of Canada. What I would say to people is that they ask me, well, how would you define hatred, Minister Varani? And I say to them, it's not my own home-baked definition of hatred. I'll take my cues from the Supreme Court of Canada and what they've decided in jurisprudence. In case law, they've actually said we're talking about detestation and vilification of a person or a group. We're not talking about things that we don't like, we're not talking about insults, we're not even talking about harmful language, we're talking about language that talks about extermination of a group, for example. That's significant, that's what arises to detestation and vilification and crosses that hatred threshold. That's what we're talking about, and we're talking about it a lot right now given the geopolitical context that we're in, we're seeing a lot of hatred in Canada that's starting to manifest, and it's starting with a lot of hatred that's being communicated online. All right. Justice Minister Arif Virani, appreciate your time on this.
0: Thank you very much. And that's our show for this Thursday, December 7th. I'm Andrew Thompson in Ottawa. Thanks for joining us for Primetime Politics here on CPAC. We'll see you again. Good night.